This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. This episode is part two of my conversations with former MLS player and current Sirius XM radio show host, Brian Dunseth. This episode is pretty cool. It's a legit, real conversation between him and I. In fact, Brian and I were on the phone for about 25 minutes just chatting away before he said, you're recording this, right? And as soon as he said that, I realized that this was going to be game on because the things that he was saying before we were actually recording were pure gold. And he didn't disappoint once we were actually recording either. And Brian is a good guy. We've uh, we've only barely started to exchange words recently, but I can tell that he's down to chop it up about things that other people are not. A lot of people shy away from certain topics in American soccer. I'm sure that you are all aware of that. Um, my first time interacting with Brian was actually on one of my most recent trips down to LA. And I was listening to him and Tony Miola on Sirius XM. I was stuck in traffic on the five freeway. Surprise, surprise. And I decided to call into the Sirius XM and I tried to ask a question. But little did I know, him and Tony were actually wrapping up their show. And so when he answered the phone, he's like, sorry, bro. Like we don't have any time to take your call. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, whatever, dude. Um, but I sent him a DM on Twitter and I said, thanks for even just answering the phone. And I want to say, I, if I remember right, I, I sent out an, or like a, I threw out an invitation to come on my show someday. And so if you fast forward a few months, here we are. Um, I have already spoken with Brian multiple times. Him and I actually exchanged uh, a few text messages last night during halftime of the U.S. men's national team game, and then he followed up this morning with some with some thoughts uh, about about our conversation from last night as well. So uh, we've we've spent uh, a decent amount of time talking on the phone now. We've interviewed or not interviewed. What am I saying? Um, we've exchanged messages multiple times. If you haven't already listened to the first part of our conversations, you can find that on 343coaching.com. And while you are there, you can check out all of the benefits of becoming a 343 Coaching Education Program member. Uh, That is the program that actually funds this podcast. So if you are a member in the Coaching Education Program, not only are you getting an education that transforms you into a far better coach from the guys that have gone through that transformation themselves and are now considered among the top in the country, but you are also helping to sustain and develop this podcast. And if you are not a coaching member and you are wondering what the 343 membership can offer you, it is the complete online resource that will help you reduce your trial and error time and help you get right to the work that matters. You learn the cutting edge training techniques that have been proven to develop better and smarter players, better and smarter teams, and better and smarter coaches. The 343 Coaching Education Program gives you insider access to exclusive videos of training sessions and full games with additional education from ebooks, audio interviews, question and answer sessions, and online forums for networking and collaboration with other coaching members. To learn more and to explore all the benefits of becoming a 343 Coaching Education Program member and to help support this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 34 and 3 coaching.com. 
all spelled out, .com. And all right, that's it for this intro. I hope you enjoy part two of my conversations with Brian Dunseth. I just pressed yeah. record. We're good to go. <laughs> yeah, my bad. <laughs> uh, no, but you know, every day um, I feel like on on SiriusXM on our show for Counterattack in the afternoons that you know we we will have a conversation. Sorry, let me check that. During the election, it felt like every day we would have a conversation, and the amount of of DMs and um, you know through through Twitter that I would get involved in, I would reach out to people after the show who kind of called in or or it sent me something on Twitter about promotion relegation and opening up the pyramid and, and trying to figure out, you know, what, what was the right way to implement it. I, I would DM people back and forth and be like, all right, cool. Let's say that you become Eric Winnall. Let's say if you could step in Eric Winnall's shoes. And as of February 10th of 2018, that afternoon, uh, you're given the keys uh, to the castle in Chicago. How would you start with implementing the implementation of promotion relegation and not just not just the physical part of it, not just renegotiating the deals and thinking about television and all the branding and commercialization, because now you're, you're creating a new business. You're, you're changing the business metrics of what the current deal looks like. But how are you going to verbalize and present what this should look like to an ownership group that is looking at a at a, at a quote-unquote closed system that is growing leaps and bounds every year. It might not obviously be growing the way we're going to judge it on, you know, the, the television viewership, but from a marketing and commercialization standpoint, this, this, this league is growing pretty quickly. Um, and it was fascinating. John. Like I, I was, I was having these back and forth with everybody, guys that would be in the media, um, guys that are, are really staunch, hardcore supporters um, of guys like Eric Bonalda who do a great job on their messaging um, to those that are kind of, you know, somewhat fascinated by the idea of promotion relegation, but can't really wrap their heads around it. Um, and I think it's those conversations back, back to kind of our original um, reference point about having these conversations and learning and hearing other people's perspectives and, even if you don't believe in them uh, or what their messaging is, if you think they're completely full of shit at the end of the day, just being able to understand where they're coming from. And maybe that, that adjusts your thinking just a little bit. Um, and to your earlier point, you know, how the conversation and what you guys have done with 343 has moved the needle and changed the narrative of what maybe the mainstream soccer fans have been thinking about. Uh, and I think that's insanely important. I think that's how you grow as a soccer nation is is the give and take because there are only so many people in power uh, that are able to kind of exercise what they're and vocalize what what their what their what their base is, what their angles are, what their beliefs are, what their core beliefs are, what their values are, uh, and the directions that they want to go, as opposed to kind of all of us, the rest of us listening to how these narratives are being created and manipulated in the media, but then being able to share through social media and having educated conversations or at a bare minimum for forcing people to think about what they're talking about. Yeah. One of the things I've, I've done recently 
is I, I'm making a, a an effort. I'm, I'm trying my best, but um, I'm making an effort to kind of step away from from the battlefield of of Twitter, and <laughs> and I'm I'm trying to to reach out to people directly, and and people that you know maybe. For the most part, it's people that I don't see eye to eye with, and so that's kind of what we were talking about uh, just before I hit record right now. And and it's people that I don't see eye to eye with, and I've gotten on on the phone with you know a handful of people over the last few weeks, and I've had you know some of the conversations have been short, ten minutes, and and some of them have been an hour and a half, and I was super surprised at where I actually found common ground with certain people, but I, I think it it was just good to kind of get away from, you know, going back and forth 280 characters at a time. And, yeah. and it, and, and the message, the message does get lost when it, it, I guess it, it just gets confusing and, and, and hard to have that conversation when you're just going tweet for tweet. Yeah. Where if you, if you give somebody an arena to talk, sometimes, you know, a point might take five minutes to, to explain fully and you're expected to, to, wrap that all in, in into 280 characters sometimes it's like it doesn't make sense and yeah. so when you when you get somebody to to or when you get somebody on a phone call or you know in an email or, or something like that that the conversation makes more sense and I think that this is this is one point that I, I've come to learn not just in the last few weeks but over the maybe the course of like the last year or two that a lot of a lot of stuff starts with very 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 good intentions and it's over the course of time that that you know people either start to take such a hard stance that it becomes negative or it becomes to appear negative or they start to kind of weaponize isn't the right word and, and that's something that that's coming from another conversation i had with somebody but they start to kind of just use their narrative in in a negative way i guess and yeah. and you know to protect whatever they have or I, I I don't know, but I think the the bottom line that I've learned is that most people do start out with with great intentions, great intentions, and uh, it, it's just interesting to learn more about why people have the feelings or have the stance or have the opinions that they have, and yeah. and what made them have those types of things or those those types of feelings, and one one of the things that I really took away from my my sit down that I had with Bob Bradley last year was that we come from two completely different worlds, completely different worlds. And so it's it's very hard for Bob to understand where I come from. And it's incredibly hard for me to understand where he comes from. It's like it, it's night and day difference the way that we were raised, the the environments that we grew up in, the soccer that we experienced yeah. and, and and the trajectories that, or the or the paths that we ultimately took. And so. Yeah. I would have never even thought to 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 compare those two and and to think about that if I hadn't had that conversation with Bob, and it's it's super it's super fascinating to me and and I'm more interested in learning about people's histories and 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 why they are the way that they are now than I ever yeah. was before. So well, and I think you make such a great point. You you humanize the user, right? You're you've now taken Twitter and and I and. and background like for me twitter I, I was i was more i only jumped on twitter for myself as brian dunseth that sounds so douchey by the way because i kind of <laughs> just referred to myself as a uh, third person but using my own twitter handle 
um, with my name um, in it in the past two years because I was more about the branding of Bumpy Pitch and the original winger, kind of like the lifestyle and the culture side that I grew up with that my partner Ben Hooper and I that both played at Cal State Fullerton um, were, were trying to you know, publicly make available to fans, like-minded fans that never were represented by, um, you know, those that, you know, the writers, uh, you know, the, the European Puma style, all that. So when I, when I switched everything over from more of like a messaging on a brand and being behind, you know, the original winger's Twitter handle and being, being behind the, the original winger's um, Instagram handle, going to myself, I made a conscious effort that, I was going to do kind of what I had been doing, but I was going to make it more of my my own messaging. But as I did that, I realized, John, that man, no one really cares what the hell I have to say. So <laughs> I decided that, I mean, I just felt like such a super douche just jumping in and trying to like pontificate. Yeah, but, and, and, and you know, I, I'll still jump in and have conversations. No problem. Like I love bantering back and forth with my friend, like people on Twitter. I've made so many friends in so many different cities. Uh, that I've been able to meet up with and grab beers with because of my travels and broadcasting side. That's the um, best. So, oh, it's amazing. And you know that. Like, it's you become friends with people. And, like, I look forward to grabbing a beer when I'm in Southern California with you, you know, first opportunity we can get. Because I think it's, to your original conversation, it's really, really fun to be able to sit down and articulate over an hour, you know, what your point of view is to give people kind of the depth outside of Twitter. So I look at Twitter and man, I, I, I retweet things that I don't necessarily believe in as, <laughs> as like I'm co-signing it. I, I always used to think of Twitter like when you retweet something, you absolutely believe it. I, I don't think that anymore. I actually, I've evolved in my, in my thinking that I'm passionate about retweeting stuff that I don't necessarily believe in, but it leads to more of the conversation. Or, okay, here's somebody else's conversation and I'll retweet it. And I, I found it interesting because I started getting some pushback from people um, like, dude, why are you retweeting that? And I'm like, well, I think it's a good talking point. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I think it layers to the conversation and gives a little bit more background to uh, what we're talking about right now. And people were like, yeah, but why would you give that guy a voice? And it's like, <laughs> well, because he, deser- he, he everybody has a voice. They deserve a voice. And I think it's an interesting subject to start thinking about. And man, you would be, and you probably wouldn't be shocked, but the pushback that I got, um, you know, with this, with this Anthony Precourt Columbus Crew situation, uh, just the other day here in Salt Lake City, Don Garber was out here uh, because the owner, Deloitte Hansen, was opening up his $78 million facility where Real Academy has um, come from Casa Grande with Martin Vasquez. So you have two teams, basically four teams worth of players, but they're here in Salt Lake City now. Uh, you have this amazing indoor facility, two full-size indoor fields, six outdoor fields. Um, you've got their living facility for uh, the Real Academy. Then you have Real Monarchs, uh, Utah Royals, and Real Salt Lake all underneath one roof. And it is absolutely incredible. So Don Garber was out there, ribbon cutting. I was doing the emceeing. Um, and so we did a sit-down, couple sit-down things for Real Salt Lake's website. But in that, we, we, cut, we, we took the interview with Garber and put it on SiriusXM on the show. And so we were we were teasing like, hey, later today, Brian Dunsett sits down with Don Garber out at the Real Salt Lake Academy. And then, um, you know, that's at the, at six o'clock Eastern and then six thirty. Uh, we're going to have uh, Phil West from Austin, Texas, give us the latest on 
you can use the hashtag save the crew in Texas. And so all of a sudden the first first text is well, I bet you don't have the balls to ask Don Garber why why you won't be involved in Save the Crew. And I'm like, listen, I, I wrote back, listen, first off, you gotta understand the setting. It's a celebration for what Deloy Hansen, the owner of Real Salt Lake, is is doing in Salt Lake City and making this a, a generational sport. And whatever he's doing for the men, he's doing for the women. So he's done that for Utah Royals and he's about to do the same for the Academy for uh girls from age i think it's 12 to all the way through to to utah royals so he's doing a great job so just for a second let's just celebrate that and oh by the way if i'm sitting with don garber you really think that in that moment if i say hey don by the way what the hell are you doing in columbus why are you letting anthony precourt try to steal the team and move in austin texas do you really think he's going to give me the answer you're looking for like, is he is he really going to answer that and be like, you know, Brian, we really screwed up. Uh, <laughs> Anthony Precourt's not going to be allowed to move this team. Like, you're not going to get that question. You're not, you're not going to get that answer. So then all of a sudden, all of uh, – and it's an interesting time, and I get what's happening. But, you know, everything that is slightly positive with regards to an MLS as an as a entity or, or uh, the individual MLS teams – it's just littered with, yeah, but save the crew in the hashtag. So I'm, I'm all good. I played for Columbus. I, I played in the very first game at Crew Stadium with the New England Revolution against Columbus. I played for Columbus. I won an open cup in front of Lamar Hunt. Uh, I emceed the rebrand. I was a part of the Crew Legends night. So I am a part of the fabric of that club. And so I would use the hashtag to keep the conversation going. You know, if an Austin Statesman article came out, I would hashtag save the crew because I would want that article circulated amongst the readers to stay up to date on what's happening in real time, whether that's Dave Greeley, the president of Precourt Sports Ventures, was meeting and lobbying for, you know, a new stadium opportunity, or that was Precourt finally being quoted in the press, or, you know, that was having someone on the ground in Texas uh, tell us what was going on because, as much as people in Columbus want to act like they know exactly what's going on, having somebody on the ground in Texas is probably better. So show's over, whatever. And crew fans, just uh, the, the, the save the crew uh, hashtag supporters just went nuts. And they started killing this guy. And then they turned it towards, you know, SiriusXM and Tamiola and I and started getting kind of malicious about it. And it was because we used the save the crew hashtag in the tweet that came from the official account from SiriusXM. And it was uh, a save you know, hashtag save the crew update from Phil West on the ground in Texas. So all of a sudden, like this, this groundswell of like anger starts back up. And I get it. I really do get it. But I've been hammering pre-court since day one so much, though, that I did get a couple calls about it. Um, and I've just continued to because I, I think the way he's handling it is is really embarrassing, not only embarrassing um, from the optics perspective, embarrassing as an owner um, and embarrassing the fact that he doesn't have the stones to get into the city of Columbus and actually step in front of the camera and step in front of the media and step in front of the fan base and explain what exactly are the parameters for him to decide to leave versus what he needs to stay. And I've said this time and time again, but man, John, I got so pissed about the way that this save the crew hashtag was being used as intellectual property that only Columbus crew fans could use it, that even if you were trying to keep the message and the conversation going, that you weren't allowed to use it unless you were a crew fan. I, I fucking lost my shit. I couldn't deal with it anymore. <laughs> it got to the point where I actually said last Thursday, um, 
I, I said on air, I will never, ever use this hashtag again. And it's not because I don't support the fans, but I don't, I don't like the way that people, and you used a good word earlier, I'm, I'm going to use it for it from you, I'll trademark it for you, weaponize. <laughs> I don't like the fact that people can weaponize something as easy as a hashtag as their own and then basically pontificate that nobody else can use it. I think it's embarrassing. Um, I think it's actually pretty disgusting. And I think it's so small minded that they couldn't realize that um, instead of trying to have this this ownership of this hashtag, that you you actually want to give it to the people and let them use it however they want. Because even bad information and bad branding is good branding for them to try to keep this narrative going, because the pressure that it creates is always going to be positive on their end, because people are going to think about Anthony Precourt. Art Modell, stealing a club, moving a club, taking opportunities away from kids. Um, and I, I just, I don't know. Sorry, I got on my soapbox for a minute because I got fired no, up about it. But. It's fine. It's fine. No, it's 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 interesting. I, I want to go back to something you said, though. Um, and, and I'm super curious just from kind of like my, my podcasting uh, standpoint or point of view. When you when you got on air and you started to talk about save the crew or talk about whatever you know there could be a, a number of different uh, topics where this might have happened. When did you realize that that people were listening and and by people I mean like you know like Precourt's team like when did you realize that the people that you were talking about were listening and when you started to get messages about like hey why why are you talking about this dude or why did you portray it like this when when did, uh, when did that moment happen for you. It, it, it happened in the first week, but it wasn't from the team. Um, I don't want to say who it came from because it, it did have to do with the team, but it didn't come from anybody with regards to ownership, president, any of that, but it did come from somewhere else. Um, but it was more about this is, this is how I'm dealing with it. This is the parameters in which we are dealing with it. Um, and I think the team and Greg Berhalter have done a phenomenal job of, of uh, muting as much of the outside noise as possible with regards to them playing every single week. Um, it's funny. I, I feel like I'm pretty aggressive on that channel about this subject. And yet when I was with Dan Cordemanche and, and with John Garber, um, I figured someone would say something to me about it because I know, <laughs> I know who's listening and I've had, I'm always shocked when, because we're, we're a real time, you know, every single day tune in, but we can never really measure uh, the analytics of Sirius XM because there are no real measurable analytics outside of um, Twitter interaction and real time calls. Um, and we generate uh, quite a few calls, um, but I'll give you an example. 4.25 a.m. Sunday morning, I'm leaving Dallas, Texas, a Plano Marriott, Texas to go catch my 6 a.m. flight at the airport. And some dude, as I put my bags away, says, uh, hey, Dunny, I love the show. I love you busting Tony Neal with balls. <laughs> um, so I just want to let you know. And I was like, holy shit, like, this is so random. Um, but me also hosting kind of the in-stadium stuff at the All-Star Game and the MLS Cup, um, I'm, always, I'm always mingling in and around um, kind of the hierarchies of, of teams and, and leadership uh, in the league. And so no one's ever reached out to me personally and tried to tried to adjust my narrative, tried to adjust what my truth is and how I go about uh, talking about this subject. But I've been I've been made aware of 
um, people are paying attention to what I'm saying. Um, and, and that's not obviously not just crew fans. That's kind of people going up the chain. And, and the reason why I bring that up is because you, you mentioned like every time that the save the crew hashtag gets used, it keeps the conversation going. And I yeah. guess what one thing that people that have been kind of on your ass about like how you use it or why you use it, what they don't understand is that every time that you use it, the, there's certain people that are listening or reading or watching yeah. and, and that is a great thing. So they might not say it that like, you know, Don Garber, for instance, might not publicly say anything about him being aware that, that you talk about it on Sirius XM, but he's absolutely aware that you talk about it on Sirius XM. And the more that you're able to talk about that, mm. the, the better it is for that conversation to keep happening. And so when yeah. they, when, when people want to like kill your use of that, then they're actually doing a disservice to it. And I don't That's know if people understand that. That's the craziest part. And the whole thing that really put me over the edge on this was there was some, I forget what he referred to himself as, like a branding expert or he works for a Twitter uh, expert. (laughs) Well, he works for some company and he was like, I, I'm the one who keeps, uh, keeps the eye on all of the analytics with the usage of that hashtag. And I was like, well, then you're out of your goddamn mind for trying to dissuade people of using that hashtag because the more momentum that you have creates more unique users and more unique opportunity and more opportunities for brand new unique users to stumble across what the messaging looks like. Because whether it's it's Facebook or it's Instagram or it's Twitter, just those three in particular, you mean you think about the the trickle down effect or you think about how many people become aware of what you're talking about because they're scrolling through their timelines five or six hours later. And this becomes one of those, those high volume moments where it's going to get stuck in your feet. But you know, what the hell do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's something, it's something that I realized kind of not early on when I was podcasting, but I was, I was honestly surprised to get some, some messages like personal messages about who was listening to my podcast. People that you, you know, people that can't come out and say, that they listen and that they enjoy the content. Uh, but it, it was just surprising to me that certain people were listening, whether or not they agreed with my position or not, doesn't matter, but, sure. but they, but they were aware that the conversation was happening. And so I, I have, I, every single time that I release anything, a tweet, a, a podcast, a, a blog post, whatever, I'm aware that this is, uh, see, I got to, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't need to be careful with how I say this at all, but I want to make sure I say it correctly that I, I'm conscious about the fact that I'm putting my opinion out publicly mm. and that's my stance. I'm 100% okay with that. And that I, I'm welcoming, uh, I'm welcoming feedback of any sort, man, I'm, I'm getting completely sidetracked with what I originally wanted to say. I need to organize my thoughts, Brian. <laughs> uh, I, trust me, I understand. <laughs> I so I, I, I guess I'm just okay with with putting my myself out there because I know that it's contributing to the conversation in a good way, whether it's received good or bad. I, I guess that's the 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 best way that I can put it. And, no, and I think that's good though because I, I think you're you've hit the nail on the head that you're contributing to the conversation. And and I think as long as 
for any of us, as long as we come from a place where you're, you're, you're speaking your truth, however malicious that may, may be perceived, I think as long as, as you're, you're unique and that you're speaking your own truth, I think that's the most important thing about this conversation because we are all sharing ideas. And for any of us to, to be so egotistical that we think that our way is the best and everyone else should just fucking listen to it, it's, it's, I always joke around. If, if you act like you know you you, you are one hundred percent correct and your way is the only way, then I, I'm not. I, I find myself less and less inclined to pay attention to anything that you're saying. Not you, but big picture, because you're not willing to think about anybody else's perspective. And I think that's where we're at. We're in such a we're in such a, a monumental phase of growth of the game. Um, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, how many kids right now? I mean, think about this, John. How many kids right now can remember or or are aware of what the starting eleven was against Colombia at the Rose Bowl in the nineteen ninety four World Cup? I mean, not a lot of people. Even nineteen ninety eight. I mean, I'd be shocked to see how many people could remember Chad Deering and Brian Mazenoff started against Germany. I mean, we're we're we are a shareable information age, but all of us old school kind of fans that grew up with the game in the United States and specifically Southern California. I mean, how many people would remember that Bora Militinovic and the U S national team squad was, was, was based in Southern California Yeah, for a year ahead of, ahead of the world cup. I mean, people were, were such a, an information sharing age now that kind of anything pre, I don't know, 2000, 2007, eight, nine, 10, maybe the 2010 world cup we had the ability to share knowledge and this is what i've always said maybe i'm just off my rocker but it was one of the reasons why we started kind of the clothing line and and, and the lifestyle and the culture website side of this is because ben hooper and i would look around and there was no one that represented our voice there was no one that represented our playing career there was no one that represented being latchkey kids and riding our bikes or skateboards to training sessions and making peanut butter and jellies and you know, turning on MTV and watching music videos back in the day that weren't, you know, that, that, was, that loved art and graffiti and music. And, you know, um, you know, you, you had to be the quarterback to get the cheerleader. You had to be the point guard to get the homecoming queen, you know, soccer, soccer guys were silky sweatpants and sambas and, you know, Adidas jackets. And they were the dorks that, you know, couldn't play the real sports. And now, now, you know, you don't have to search for your information. You, you've created a cultivated stream of, your individual likes or dislikes and what you want to look for and how you, how you kind of create what the conversation looks like based on who you want to follow and who you want to interact with. Yeah. It's it, one, one thing that I, I, I actually tweeted out recently uh, was that I've been fighting a, a weird battle with people sp- specifically in my area because of my age for a long time. So I'm, I'm only 30 years old and I've been a vocal member of my soccer community since I was 15. That's when I got my first coaching job, but I've always had age like going against me. And one thing that that's, that's kind of been against me is something that you actually just mentioned is that I, I don't know the history of, you know, the 1990 or 1989, you know, qualifying run. I don't know that, you know, the starting lineup from the 1994 world cup, I was seven years old at that time. And so yeah. I've gotten, I've gotten into some conversations where people have kind of used that against me. It's like, <laughs> how, how, how can you, how can you tell me that, you know, me being seven years old when something happened, it 
disqualifies me from being able to be part of a conversation about American mm-hmm. soccer. And mm-hmm. so I, I get what you're saying and specifically about like nobody being able to represent you and, and not, and not feeling like there, there was something out there for you to kind of latch on to like a, like a, maybe a message or like a, like a brand, because I've, I've long felt the same way that, you know, nobody really represents me. And, and because in large part, it's people that, the people that have been kind of controlling soccer have been a generation or two ahead of me. And so yeah. my, my, especially in my area, it's like my generation has kind of been, you know, it, it was kind of like a skip. Like we went from 94, 98, and then a big skip till that, you know, 2008 time range that you kind of mentioned and yeah. everything in between there. I really feel like there, there, there was almost like a, it was like a gap year or something like a gap decade for me at least. Yeah. No, and 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 I'm glad you brought that up because that's to 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 how you're talking about what has been used against you. That's something. That's a narrative that I have to fight every single day. When you know, being an American broadcaster, growing up in Southern California, playing in Major League Soccer, um, being a part of the under 20s and uh, the under 23s, um, but never making, unfortunately, the full the full transition to the to the full team. Um, you know, I was involved with, I don't know, 10, 15 different camps, but I was never, I never became kind of one of the rock solid center back choices that, uh, you know, Bruce Arena or Steve Sampson had. Um, so now I find myself every single day when we're talking about Liga or Bundesliga or Serie A or La Liga or Premier League or Champions League or Europa League, um, you know, European qualifiers, Euro 2016, World Cup qualifiers. All of that stuff, I'm constantly, every single day, and I'm fascinated if, if you find yourself in the same conversation, that you almost have to prove yourself. Yep. You know, you, you have to, you cannot fuck up. You can't say one wrong thing because immediately you're going to be dismissed. And once you have a dismissive listener, um, you're just going to be the fucking American who doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I I absolutely agree with that. And and one way that I think coaches specifically have kind of bunkered down and, and used as like a qualification is like the coaching licenses. And and, oh, I, yeah. I, and I hate that because you know having a a coaching license doesn't necessarily qualify you to yeah. to be to be part of the conversation. Does it disqualify you because you don't have it? Does it disqualify you because you have it? No. Like it, yeah. that it's just that's not to me that's not a good enough measure to or or shouldn't be the only measure uh yeah. when it when it comes to joining a conversation or, or you know, dismissing people from a conversation. And Yeah. And and I mean I, I get into that as a player. You know, I, I feel good about my playing career. Um I'll always have kind of my own personal regrets, but I'm happy with the, the path that I took, because I think for me, playing was always as important as kind of the cultural experience that I found myself in the middle of. Like, I always wanted to experience who I was around. I wanted to learn from people. I, I wanted to, to gain those relationships outside of, of just what the locker room and, and just playing on the field meant. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's really, really important to to look at that as well when you think about kind of players' careers of, of how they're going about individually, you know, is it all about the money? Are, are they are they just looking at it as a fine-line space and time that they can capitalize on on earning money playing the game? Or 
is it, you know, is, is it, is it about the lifestyle? Is it about the culture? I mean, I, I was 1997, 20 years old into the season. And because Richard Goff, uh, his loan deal was going back to Glasgow Rangers. I got to go to Glasgow Rangers for almost four months from October, November, December, and start of January and be around Paul Gascoigne and Ali McCoist and Reno Gattuso, um, you know, Barry Ferguson, uh, and, and what an incredible experience that was on off the on and off the field. The next year in 1998, because Frankie Haydock had signed with Bayer Leverkusen off the backside of three really good crosses and a second half substitution performance against Germany, um, I got to go to Bayer Leverkusen and spend three and a half months over there. And what you know, soaking it all in, Christoph Dom, you know, being the manager at the time and and being able to go to all of those games and be at the training sessions and jump in with the first team every once in a while. And those were all really, really important, but it was just as important to kind of feed off being a young American living abroad. And, you know, those, those transformative moments where you didn't speak the language and you had to figure it out. You know, you had to get from one place or another and you would sit down during breakfast and kind of think about how you were going to get there. You know, where are you going to take a cab? Where are you going to try to fight through the language barrier? Where are you going to walk? Where could you find when USA Today costs 25, 50 cents? Where, where could you go find that? Because even watching The Simpsons was in German on television. <laughs> so, um, yeah, man, it's, uh, it, it, it's all when, when people say, you know, kids got to go to Europe. I agree, but I also I agree with an asterisk mark that uh, there are plenty of people that, even you and I know in daily life that we've grown up with or grown up alongside the maturity level is just as important as the idea of being put in the best environment they can possibly be put in. Something that I've never thought of before just, just crossed my mind and that's, and maybe I can try to use your player trajectory as an example. So it's like you, as a young player, you're growing up and then, and then you get invited or sorry, you, you, you go to Cal State Fullerton and that's a brand new experience for, you know, college and, and you're yeah. going to, you have to go through all the, the, the struggles of, you know, operating on your own for the first time in your life pretty much. And then at 20 years old, you get this opportunity to go to the New England, uh, New England Revolution, right? Yeah, so you get this opportunity to go into Major League Soccer. That's a brand new experience again, and then you get your first opportunity to go to Europe, and you know that's a brand new experience again, and and so it's like this constant like just learning curve after learning curve after learning curve, and then very quickly, like abruptly, it's all over, yeah. and so it's like you never really, you never really get like that time to feel established and and you know develop that sense of security because it's always just, it's always just new, 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 and then over. Yeah. And, you, and you're chasing the tail of the dragon constantly. You know, you're, you're, you're constantly thinking about, um, I'll, I'll give you the perspective for me every day when I woke up, I mean, I, I knew in the, in the back of my mind that there were guys that were more talented and that pinky toe than I had in my whole body, but I was going to outwork them. Um, and so that meant anything from doing pushups and sit-ups while I was at home at night, during a commercial break, uh, just to give myself maybe in my mind, a little bit more of an advantage, uh, trying to push myself in fitness sessions to just be a little bit fitter than my opponent, because maybe in the 90th minute that when they were sucking wind, maybe those, you know, final couple of sprints at the end of training would, would give me that advantage, all of those things. Um, you know, and, and, and then you think about, okay, now that I'm competing, 
am I competing against the roster? Am I competing against my teammates? Am I competing against changing the narrative in my coach's mind that he can either trust me or believe in me or have faith in me? Um, and then you think about kind of uh, an individual game. Okay, here's my individual battles. I've got to win this battle. I know his strengths. I know his weaknesses. I know he's faster than me. Can I cut down the angle? Where's my starting point? Um, where are my hands with regards to being within arm's length distance of, of the runner at all times? How am I, how am I positioning my body? Where am I thinking about my back four? If I need to pull an offside trap or if I am the last defender, can I, can I step if I'm in the wrong spot? So then you think about that, the individual of a, of a game to the collective of the season. Are we successful? Are we not successful? Have I done enough in a shitty team to, be maybe the first conversation when teams are thinking about making the trade um, because, you know, I, I was, I felt like I had a pretty good year, but the team sucked because we didn't have a goal scorer. And that inevitably means that I'm going to be traded. Oh, by the way, I'm in an option year. I'm in an option year of a brand. I, you know, I need to, I need to negotiate a brand new contract, but I get this call from Bruce arena to go down in the January camp for us soccer. So how does that maybe change my own personal value? And is my agent fighting for me or is he doing a group deal? Uh, I had, I had a, I, I was, I was in Columbus, Ohio. My agent had two other players. And next thing I know, the three of us, two of us are at national team camp and one's back home. And we find out we're all making the same amount of money. So then I'm find myself having a conversation with my agent. How do I know that you fought for me as opposed to, you know, just doing a group deal? Oh, you got to trust me. Well, I don't fucking trust you. I don't trust anybody. This is my livelihood. <laughs> you know, like, how do I know that you weren't, you weren't offered 150 grand for me and 75 for him. And you just said, Hey, let's just split in the middle uh, for all three. And then all three will be happy. And then if some budget, budget compliance, it makes you look better, you know? And, and so there's so many things that happen in real time. And then you think about all the relationships, you think about birthdays, you think about your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister my first year, uh, day before my very first playoff game start, my little sister in Upland, California was drugged by a school bus. Teacher closed, or the bus driver closed uh, the door on her backpack and drug her down the street. She almost died. And my parents didn't tell me because they knew I was starting in the playoffs the next day. Yikes. And then after the game, they told me, um, you know, partners, my girlfriend cheating on me, uh, missing uh, the death of my grandfather. All of those things come in the perspective of, this lifestyle experience within the game and traveling the world with the, with the under twenties and the Olympic team going to, to Germany and France and to Spain and Malaysia and South Korea um, and England and playing against Manchester United, you know, playing against Liverpool and watching Johnny O'Brien strip. Um, oh, what was his name? Strip uh, Danny. Oh my gosh. I can't blow him blank, but watching, watching Johnny O'Brien at the time that I act stripping Danny Murphy of the ball in the midfield and then chipping the goalkeeper from 50 yards. As I look over Steve McManaman sitting with, with Brad Friedel um, and, and, and kind of laughing about it. Like, who's this young kid? He can play. Um, so all of those, you know, all of those things are within, within this wild ride of a, of a playing career that, you know, a lot of times we don't have the opportunity to talk about because people never really think about, you know, what's happening both on and off the field in, in a player's development. And I, that's me joining the league in 97. Can you imagine either the pros or the cons, the distractions or the opportunities that kids are having now? Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. I I, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to ask maybe just one more question. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then maybe, maybe we can do this again some other time too. So I know yeah, we did this yesterday, yeah. but um, you, 
you mentioned that a lot of times I think athletes or people, just people in general, don't don't have the time or take the time to sit back and reflect or tell these types of stories and, and really, you know, evaluate what has happened and, and kind of what has brought them to the point that they're at now. And, and, and I'm curious if you look back on, on this often, and, and if you do, if there's, you know, one specific time that you, that you really like to look back on and whether for a, a good or a bad reason. Oh man. Okay. So I'll pull the curtain back. Um, and I've had this, I've had this conversation with a couple of players that have retired, um, over the last five years, but it's not something that we talk about too often. So um, two things happen. One, players in the midst of all of this, when you see somebody get cut, you know, you see the the their contract come to an end and, and they're not renegotiated. And this is the last time what we were talking about yesterday, the last time you ever earn a paycheck as a professional soccer player. There's one thing that specifically happens, and that is you are pushed out of the circle. You're pushed out of the circle, not because you're a bad person. You're pushed out of the circle, not because of any, anything that you've done. You're pushed out of the circle because, holy shit, that's going to happen to me one day. And players, players get so nervous and so scared that they don't even want to think about something like that. And when it does happen, it's so close to real life. Um, it hits, it's hit so close to home that everyone kind of has squeaky bum time. Uh, everyone gets so scared about that idea of, holy shit, Dunny, Dunny got cut. Or holy shit, Dunny's contract didn't get picked up and he can't find a new team. That is, that, that is, that's the death. They, everybody knows that that's, that's the death that's happening in real time, a death of a playing career. And there's, that's right around the corner for them. It's a finite amount of time. So number one, that happens. Number two and, and, I've, and I've realized this in kind of conversations with friends who never made it, um, who were really, really close and were unfortunate for one reason or another. They never really had that final opportunity. Um, is that, to be quite honest, Sean, nobody wants to hear an athlete bitch and moan. No, nobody, nobody wants to hear an athlete complain about, man, dude, you know what sucks? I played nine years. I was able to go to the under-20s uh, World Cup in Malaysia. I was the captain of the Olympic team in 2000, played in a bronze medal match, marked Bam Bam Zamorano. We exchanged jerseys after the end of the season. But you know what, man? I never really made it to a World Cup. That sucks. You know what people say? Are you fucking out of your mind, bro? All I wanted to do was be a professional soccer player, and you got to play for nine, ten years? What the fuck are you complaining about? And so you don't you, you find yourself like once you've had one or two of those conversations, you realize that you playing professionally lived a dream that you, you're, you become kind of this. And it sounds really weird to say it out loud. You become kind of this 1%. You become this 1% of you actually fulfilled the dream of virtually all of these kids growing up is, man, I wish I could be on that. I, I'm watching this game. I wish I could be on that field. I wish I could feel what it was like. I wish I was good enough to to be a part of that and you realize very quickly that because you were a part of that that you you don't get to complain you, you don't get to bitch and moan um and i think you know, we're having this conversation about ian joy yesterday and his tweet a year or two ago about depression i think that's one of the things that comes along with this is number one we're always taught when we compete 
is we got to be hard. We got to be tough. We got to be, we got to be there. We have to be there for our teammates. We have to be available for our, for our group, for our, for our club, for our coaches. Um, we, we have to fight through everything to make sure that everyone can believe in us as we move forward as a group. But then when it's all gone, you realize you're out on the island by yourself that not too many people really truly understand what you've gone through unless there's someone that's been there along the way. And even your parents, you don't want to complain to your parents because you, you, you're still living the dream, right? So then when it comes to an end, all of a sudden you realize that you really can't talk to your, you, you can't, you can't talk to people that aren't immediately in your inner circle about the bad because they don't, they, they don't want to hear it. They want to hear about the good. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why not too many people find themselves publicly talking um, about their past. I mean, at least I, I live on really two things that really got me into the broadcasting career is number one, uh, the first goal scored at home for Real Salt Lake. Um, you know, it was a, a diving header against Colorado Rapids and everyone in Salt Lake for the most part still remembers that. And number two, being the captain of the Olympic team in 2000, I went to a bronze medal match. And outside of that, I had a pretty, I would say, stably average MLS career uh, with an experience over in Europe when I found myself being screwed over by the rules and regulations of Major League Soccer. Um, but in terms of what I remember most, that moment walking out uh, with the captain's band in the bronze medal match for the United States against Chile and Bam Bam Zamorano, who at the time was at Inter Milan scoring a boatload of goals, was walking out right to my right-hand side. I remember that. Um, I don't go back and I don't watch games. I, a lot of them aren't available anyways outside of VHS uh, <laughs> that, my, that my mom sent me back in the day. Um, but I would say more so the thing that I, I cherish most outside of the game are kind of the personal relationships that I've created, you know, interns that are now uh, decision makers, um, you know, teammates that are now uh, involved at virtually every level of the game, guys that are not involved with the game um, that I still meet with. I feel like every city that I go to, I have a, a core group of friends that I could reach out to and hang out with. Um, and it's, because I was fortunate enough to to be involved in, in playing professional soccer that's now turned into kind of the broadcast broadcast realm. Man, I'm, I'm I, I I don't think I've expected any answer that you've given me today or yesterday. Like I didn't I didn't expect the conversations to even go in, in these directions, which is it's pretty cool. And and I was thinking about as you were answering that, like potential titles for you know, this podcast or something when I put it out there and it's like something, something along the lines of like humanizing Brian Dunseth or humanizing <laughs> the, the professional players or, you know, just, just having those real conversations like we're having. And, and unfortunately that we had, I, I didn't press record on uh, early enough because we got like 25 minutes of a, of a solid conversation before I actually hit record today. Um, but, but these are the conversations that I, that, that I love to have. And I think that people love to hear and and they're just different than than what's available and and I couldn't be more thankful to have uh to have you come on and just open up dude it's it's amazing yeah no John I appreciate it man and, and I I would love to uh, continue the conversation because I know we only touched on on some of the things but uh, not too often do I get to have kind of these conversations with someone um 
and it's been a blast because I, I think, you know, we, we kind of joked around uh, in the early days of MLS. We always said if we, if we wrote a book, it would be called If They Only Knew. And it would be kind of uh, yeah. stories of, uh, of everything that happened uh, around on and off the field uh, within the game. But we'd have to change all the names and the locations to protect the innocent <laughs> and the state and the statute of limitation uh, because we had so much fun, um, you know, just on and off the field. But I, I agree. There's there's so many, and this is this is it's kind of so many stories that I pitched. And one of the reasons why we we initially did do kind of the lifestyle and the culture website is that you know every every player, you know, we kind of call those those Michael Jordan moments, right, where a player was cut or released and told they weren't good enough and how, how that turned into this long-term motivation. Um, but I think there's also, there's so many in-depth conversations to have to kind of dig into a player's psyche um, and why they did what they did and understanding, you know, understanding exactly where they were at in that moment, uh, not to justify, but to give, to give a little bit more depth and layering to, um, you know, a, a player why they would choose to, you know, re-sign a contract, why they would choose to leave a league, why, why they would not choose to explore bigger and better opportunities abroad or in South America or in Mexico. Um, because it, there's, it, it, it becomes so fast fascinating when you, when you humanize and, and you personalize these, these athletes, um, because they all have really, really incredible backstories. And I think the one thing that, the game doesn't give it enough credit for quite honestly, John is the fact that, you know, we talk about here in the United States as a melting pot. You think about the, you think about the locker room, the locker room is maybe the biggest cultural melting pot that there possibly could be with regards to soccer, because you're getting, you're getting African, you're getting European, you're getting South American, you're getting Asian um, in terms of just ethnicity and background, then the religious aspect, then, you know, the sexual aspect, uh, you know, male, female, uh, heterosexual, uh, gay, uh, trans, all of these conversations are, are happening in the locker room and then the political aspect of all of this. Um, you, you, I think soccer players are really, really well-rounded individuals because they've been exposed to so many different backgrounds and cultures. Um, and it's, it, it's one of the things that I, I think I'm most proud of is, is being able to to learn and ask questions and be taught in the midst of that, that wild ride that I was able to kind of stay on for, for 10, 11 years. I'm sitting here as you're talking, I'm just like nodding my head. Like, yep, yep. This, this all makes sense. <laughs> this all makes sense. And, and one thing I've constantly asked myself every single time that I see a goal scored, especially in, in European leagues and everybody kind of runs to the corner flag and they're, they're celebrating. You can see it like their mouths are moving. They're saying things to each other. I'm always super curious what language they're speaking to each other in. Yeah. And if it's, and if it's all the same, because it's like, if you get a, you know, a melting pot of, you know, a couple guys from Africa, a guy or two from Italy, somebody from Germany, England, and it's like, okay, is there, is there a common, is there a common denominator amongst all of them? Or does somebody not speak the language? Like when, like when Christian was yeah. at, for, first in Germany, I know I talked with his dad and he's like, you know, one of the struggles was having to learn German. Yeah. And so it's like when he's on the field with these guys, how, how is he communicating with them? That's always yeah. super fascinating to me. But. Oh, yeah. I mean, the first thing I learned when I got to Leverkusen, uh, well, first when I got to Glasgow, it was, uh, it was they gave me a long a, a jersey, like a, a training jersey and a long sleeve kind of T-shirt, no gloves, no beanie, no jacket, shorts and socks. And every time I had my hands inside of my sweatshirt, 
uh, John, the reserve team coach, would be like, Tony, get down and give me 50 press-ups right now. Get your fucking hands out your fucking chest. And I'd be like, oh, okay, cool. And so the next thing I know when I got home, I had this broad chest because I was doing push-ups every 10 minutes in, in Scotland. And then when I got to Germany, it was, you know, the one thing I – the one thing I loved is through all of my travels, it was the recognition of English might not have been, uh, was most definitely in a lot of countries, not the primary first language, but virtually everyone inside the locker room was, was capable of speaking English. And I was always ashamed of the fact that I never, I never did enough. I mean, I, I, I can, I can understand Spanish. It's passable enough to me to get through being from Southern California and doing my doing doing enough in high school, but I was ashamed that I wasn't fluent, uh, and I made that a priority when I was in Sweden. And it was funny; it was the first time I kind of had this this pushback because I was an American. Number one, George Bush had just uh, been reelected, so the Swedes couldn't wrap their heads around why he would be elected um, because that was the political environment, and they were burning Bush effigies as I was walking down the street my first couple of days in Sweden. Um, and then number two. Because I was the foreigner, I wasn't, al- and because of my visa, I was on an artist visa because I was an athlete. I couldn't sign up for Swedish classes. They they wouldn't they wouldn't allow me to sign. Here I am, as a foreigner in their country, trying to sign up to learn their language every single day, going in the mornings and trying to do a, a two hour class of intensive Swedish studies, um, language studies, and. I wasn't allowed to because number one, I wasn't a Swedish national. And number two, my visa was incorrect. And so I couldn't sign up for the classes. And so I taught myself to, to, by, by watching television, Sweden is an amazing country in terms of when you watch TV, it comes in the primary language. It could be German, it could be French, it could be Russian, it could be, uh, you know, Spanish, it could be uh, English, whatever it may be, but then it'll have subtitles, Swedish subtitles. So I learned the very first word I learned, I was watching a show and it said, I love you. And I see Yagal Skardi. And I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to watch as much English television as possible. And then in my mind, I'm going to put together, I'm going to teach myself seeing the Swedish subtitles. And I was watching cartoons. I was watching, um, you know, uh, it wasn't Jimmy Kimmel tonight. It was uh, whoever at the time, uh, David Letterman. And I was I was watching it not be because it was English, but because I could watch the words come through. And then I could read the newspaper every day and start piecing together what the article was talking about and getting the gist of articles and about soccer. And then I would turn it to in field and racing and then kind of just the news, the daily news in Sweden. Um, and I, and I, I just I found it so fascinating to be a part of all of those different cultures and recognizing, you know, when I got to Germany, how do I say as a defender, how do I say to your left, to your right, man in front, go, you know, like hold the line, get up, you know, clear, let's go out. And I was, I was every single day trying to learn different words in German so I could communicate and in words in, in Swedish so I could communicate until the guys are like, Brian, we fucking speak English, just fucking talk English. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I want to speak your language. And they're like, no, you're, you're, you're fucking battering the words. Like, so just say, just say it in English. So. Um, yeah, it, it, it was, it was a wild ride, man. That's funny. Hey, well, let's, uh, let's, uh, 
wrap there and then and see if we can get back on another call sometime soon because I think that there's a lot of topics that that you and I can get into and and yeah like you said kind of pull back the curtain on some stuff that maybe you guys don't get to talk about very often yeah you want to let's plan it right now you want to do it next week sometime kind of same time Let me... like 9 15 is that work yeah no that's always great the mornings are always awesome for me cool. uh, let me pull up my schedule really quick oh shit where do I keep it Yeah, any day early in the week is good for me. Okay, let's let me let me pull this up really really fast because I know I have two big things next week. Yeah, all good, dude. Um, yeah, my computer's going super slow right now. Uh, let's see, next week. Oh, all my stuff's in the evening. Okay, so let's do. Um, how is there Champions League next week? There is. Uh, right? yeah, yeah. Let's do. If we do next Tuesday, same time, like. 8 15, cool. 9, 9, 9.15 your time? Perfect. Okay, so Tuesday, 9.15 your time. Perfect. All right, cool, man. I look All forward right, to it. Sounds good, man. All right, later. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. And thank you to Brian Dunseth for coming back on the show for a second time. And I think that you guys are going to enjoy if Brian and I continue this series of conversations that we've been having. Um, And if you would like to find the first episode that Brian and I recorded, you can find that on 343coaching.com. You can find this episode there as well if you'd like to revisit it. And you can find a bunch of stuff on 343coaching.com. And that includes our coaching membership program. And that membership program is actually what funds this podcast. Here is what Colton Bly had to say about his experience with the 343 membership program. If you want them to adopt a behavior or adapt a behavior, you have to rehearse and you have to choreograph. And when I, like I said, when I first heard that from Brian in the Brian in the introductory course, I'm like, that makes so much sense. Seeing his uh, at the time Chivas players doing their building out of the bat choreography. And then all of a sudden that changing to a game clip where they are doing that and they are having success and they are able to, you know, break lines into the midfield or pull the opponent out of shape, whatever it works. And that's one thing that I've taken and not just in the form of building out of the bag, but also in the attacking patterns and even in the defensive moment of the game, uh, running through rehearsed movements on how our how we press when we're defending in the attacking third or how we defend as a block and where all players need to be to keep our you know horizontal and vertical compactness in the mid in the middle third of the field when we're defending so the benefits of rehearsing these things is huge you see it translate to the game and it helps your team all right you can find all of that and more at 343coaching.com that's 343coaching all spelled out dot com Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time here on the 343 Podcast.